Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Hello and welcome to the Forum at the Harvard School of Public Health. Uh, today's topic may sound like the makings of a horror film. We're going to be talking about nightmare bacteria. Some people call them superbugs, but of course this isn't fiction. Uh, we're here to talk about drug-resistant microbes. These are the germs that have evaded our defenses against them. Where do they come from and what can we do about them? That's what we're here to explore. My name is David Barron. I'm health and science editor for PRI's The World, which is a daily international news program that's broadcast on public radio stations across the United States. I'll be moderating today's discussion with an excellent panel of experts whom I will be introducing shortly. Um, today's event is a collaboration of the Forum and PRI's The World and WGBH. It's also part of the Andalo series on current science controversies. The Forum is a live webcasting series about health policy that's produced here at the Harvard School of Public Health, which I should note is celebrating its centennial this year. Uh, we are live tweeting, and you can follow it with the hashtag SuperBugsRise, kind of scary. Uh, you can also email questions, and we'll be going to questions a little bit later. Um, and you can email those starting now. The address is theforum at hsph.harvard.edu. And today's program will last about an hour. Uh, we'll be showing two clips along the way from the PBS series Frontline. It recently aired a program uh, called Hunting the Nightmare Bacteria, which explored some of the issues we'll be talking about today. And we will be taking questions from you, our uh, in-studio audience, toward the end of the hour. So let me just briefly introduce our panelists. Uh, starting to my immediate right, Stuart Levy is a professor at Tufts University School of Medicine and president of the Alliance for the Prudent Use of Antibiotics. Mark Lipsitch works here at the Harvard School of Public Health. He's a professor of epidemiology and directs the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. Next to him is Aaron Kesselheim, who directs the program on regulation, therapeutics, and law at Brigham and Women's Hospital just around the corner here in Boston. And joining us remotely from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta is Beth Bell. She directs the National Center for Emerging and Zoonotic Infectious Diseases at the CDC. And I want to start with you, Stuart Levy. Uh, you have been sounding the alarm about antibiotic resistance since, if I'm not mistaken, the 1970s? Correct. How bad have things gotten today? Well, the fact that we're meeting here tells you that they've gotten worse. How much worse depends upon where you are and what organisms you're looking at. But it hasn't gone away. And I think that what we noted early on, and we can talk later about that, is that there was suspicion that this kind of problem really didn't exist. I mean, think about other things people would say. What do you mean, bacteria that are resistant to multiple drugs? That can't happen. So people saw you as an alarmist? They saw me as wanting funds for my lab. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you, you, have, you actually have quite prominent people on your team at this point. Last year, the United Kingdom's chief medical officer called drug-resistant bacteria, quote, as big a risk as terrorism. Now, is that, would you those agree kind, with that? Yeah, those kind of remarks sort of make you wonder as to the reality. I would say it always helps, but I wouldn't say it. You would not say no, that? No, I would say, not 
not in line with terrorism, perhaps with other problems, but I think that the issue has not gone away. The issue is now multiple drug resistance, which it wasn't always, because at the beginning you had an occasional, but it was not an issue. In the 1990s is where multi-drug resistance began to emerge and be a problem. And then later than that was the spread of resistant bacteria among different populations. And we're going to talk a little bit about how that happens and, and what is happening. But just to put this in a broader context, the antibiotic era has been remarkably short. Uh, I mean, it was 1928 that Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin. Um, we are living in a remarkable time where infectious disease usually can be treated. Some people are saying we are coming to the end of the antibiotic era. Do you think that that is true? No. But I do think we're in danger of not being able to save lives that we could save. And I think that's the issue. We're an industrialized nation, U.S., Europe. Why do we lose patients? We shouldn't. We should be. If we can go to the moon, there's a better, then we can cure. We should be able to cure bacterial infections and viruses as well. Well, let's give a a face to this problem. I want to go to uh, the first of our clips from the PBS program, Frontline. Uh, th you know, these bacteria really can threaten any of us, and that can include an active 11-year-old girl named Addie Rarisich in Tucson, who one day simply told her mother that she was experiencing pain in her hip. So let's go to that clip. I thought, well, you know, she's just finishing up softball. She had been to the track meet, you know, it all kind of, well, it could have been an injury. I gave her some ibuprofen. As the night wore on, her pain got worse. She didn't sleep much that night. Woke me up a couple of times asking if she could take a hot bath or have another ibuprofen. The next morning, Tanya Rarisich, a nurse for 16 years, took Addie to a local hospital where they said she had symptoms of a virus. But over the next few days, the pain spread and the fever got worse. I was afraid. At that point, I remember being very afraid. And so I packed a bag and we went to another hospital that had um, specialized in children's care. I remember thinking, she looks bad. This is bad. Something's really, really wrong. They put her on antibiotics. They were, her blood pressure was dropping. They you know, were making space in the ICU for her. The next morning, she needed oxygen via mask. They looked at part of her lungs and diagnosed her with pneumonia. I remember sitting there watching the sun come up and thinking, how did she get so sick? How did this happen so fast? I met Addie in a hospital bed in the intensive care unit. She was lying there, breathing quickly. She was scared. Um, she had uh, little infected boils all over her body. What really looked most likely when I saw her was a staph bacteria causing septic shock. And Addie fit a pattern that I recognized with community-associated MRSA. When you say community, I mean, this is what you mean that a kid picks it up in a playground with a scrape to the knee, right? Correct. The spread of MRSA, 
a staph bacteria that causes infections resistant to many antibiotics, has long been a big problem inside hospitals. But over the last two decades, it's also been found outside, in the community. In Addie's case, she was a skin picker. She, she as do many kids, picked at her little scabs. Um, and that was likely what introduced the staph infection. But the staph was just the start of Addie's troubles. She already had evidence of an early pneumonia, and it looked like she was about to get a lot sicker. I asked him, what were the odds of her making it, getting well? What did he say? He said 30%, but he had to think about it for a minute, and I knew he was lying to me. I knew. By the time your blood has bacteria in it, you're in real trouble. Now, I should say, Addie did survive, um, thank goodness, but she picked up a second drug-resistant infection while in the hospital and ended up needing a lung transplant, so it's still not exactly a happy ending. Uh, you can watch the entire Frontline program on uh, Frontline's website. Beth Bell, I want to go to you next because um, your branch of the CDC has the job of protecting Addie and me and all of us from drug-resistant bacteria. How is the fight going? Uh, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, this is a terrible story, the story we just heard, and unfortunately, um, there are more stories like this. One is too many, there are more. And we are quite committed here at the CDC to fighting antibiotic resistance. We estimate that more than 2 million people every year get a resistant infection. And a conservative estimate um, is that about 23,000 people die of these infections. The cost uh, from antibiotic-resistant infections is huge. It's been estimated to be as high as $20 billion in excess medical costs and an additional $30 billion in lost productivity. Um, this year, we at the CDC released the first ever report um, which um, describes the situation with antibiotic-resistant threats in the United States. Right, and I should say, people can go to your website and read it, and it's pretty scary. It's sort of a rogues gallery of these villains, and you identify several of them as urgent threats. Yes, that's right. In the report, we um, uh, deal with 18 different pathogens, and we um, categorize these pathogens into three categories, um, urgent threats, um, and these are uh, infections like um, CRE, carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriaceae, um, Clostridium difficile, and multidrug-resistant gonorrhea. Serious threats, um, and these are uh, infections like uh, MRSA that you just heard about. And then uh, threats that are concerning, um, which are um, things, for example, like a streptococcus that causes neonatal infections. And we felt that by categorizing um, these threats, um, it um, helps to spotlight um, the various different uh, ways that we need to focus efforts um, as we go forward. Quick question, and we, we will be getting to uh, solutions to these problems in a bit. We're not just here to scare everybody. But, uh, but I'd like to have you respond to what the UK's chief medical officer said, calling this as big a problem, as big a threat as terrorism. Would you agree with that? Um, I would say that there are um, 
a, a lot of serious threats these days, um, and that antibiotic-resistant organisms uh, is one of them. Um, I would agree with Dr. Levy that um, it's perhaps not um, that useful to make comparisons like this. Um, the purpose of our report was really to sound the alarm, to give a sense of what the scope of the problem is and what um, the most urgent threats are, and to provide um, some general guidance about what people can do, what healthcare providers can do, and what we as a society can do to um, sort of stop the spread and to prevent this from um, getting uh, any worse than it is and make progress to, towards improving the situation. Great. Well, we will get back to the what we can do about this shortly. But I want to talk briefly about the science um, and Mark Lipsitch to go to you. Uh, we all depend on many life-saving drugs, drugs for asthma, drugs for heart disease, drugs for cancer, and those seem to work year after year after year. Antibiotics, we're finding, work for a while, and then they stop working. What is it about antibiotics and bacteria that make this a different challenge? Well, the treatment of bacteria is, is a fight against an organi another organism, uh, unlike heart disease, where we're just fighting against our our cholesterol deposits. Um, the, the fight against bacteria is a fight against an organism that divides every half an hour or so in many cases uh, for the fast, fastest bacteria. Um, they have a high mutation rate. Um, that means that their DNA can change uh, each division and under selective pressure of antibiotics they can develop resistance. So they are literally evolving. I mean this is Darwinian evolution. This is evolution in action. Um, and they have taught us a lot about the sort of scope of how evolution can happen. They're much cleverer than, than we are, for example, in finding ways to get new genes. And I use clever in, <laughs> in quotes, but they can, they can take up the DNA of their dead relatives uh, <laughs> and incorporate it. And if that happens to inc include useful uh, functions, they can incorporate those functions. They can hook up with each other hmm. physically and move DNA from one bacterium to the next, even between species. Um, so you can have, you can actually have uh, an antibiotic resistance germ develop, and not only will that germ spread, but it can spread its resistance to other species. That's right. In a hospital, that's say, right. or in and a community. That's one of the major reasons why hospitals are hotbeds of many of these resistant, multi-resistant infections, is that the, the resistance determinants get together on a single piece of DNA and that piece of DNA in many cases is transmissible from one bacterium to another. Well, and there was a fascinating study that came out a couple of years ago, some Canadian scientists who went up to the Yukon, dug into the permafrost, pulled up some bacteria that had been frozen for 30,000 years, and in that 30,000-year-old bacteria they found antibiotic resistance genes. Now, how is that possible? Right. From them, they ex clearly existed before antibiotics existed. That's not true. Right. <laughs> their role in life is to reproduce. That's it. Think about it. All they have to do is survive. That's the demand. And if they get confronted by an antibiotic, they're going to say, pull in this gene, pull in that gene. So you're saying these genes pre-existed the challenge. They not only pre-existed, and they saw, you know, they, they, they saw animals that we no longer talk about come and go. Dinosaurs, for instance, where did they go? Well, talk to a bacterium. He might be able to tell you. But, but many, of our, many of our antibiotics, especially the older groups of them, come from other bacteria and other microorganisms. So the antibiotics themselves are natural. 
and there are modifications of right. natural products like penicillin, for example. Um, and so the exposure to bacteria and the selective pressure uh, to, to antibiotics and the selective pressure on bacteria to resist them has been around for a long time in many cases. So they're prepared for this onslaught of drugs that we're creating. Yeah. And, and, well, speaking of an onslaught of drugs or lack thereof, Aaron Kesselheim, I just want to turn to you to talk a little bit about sort of the broader policy and business picture here. We have antibiotics that have been developed, cost a lot of money to develop. They've stopped working for a, a number of cases of infections. So you would think we'd have uh, a market for new antibiotics to come along and drug companies uh, clamoring to come out with those drugs. Is that the case? Well, um, I, do th I think that there has been a concern that uh, you know, about uh, 10 or 20 years ago, a lot of drug companies started leaving the field. A lot of the larger drug companies started leaving the field of antibiotic development uh, because they perceived that there was uh, greater profit margins in creating products for other diseases. And, um, uh, you know, since the drug companies are looking at what the, you know, in what kinds of products can bring revenue back uh, to their shareholders, um, that was, a, in, in a sense, a rational business judgment for them. Um, but what it has left is it's left a lot of, um, a lot of the in investment and um, innovation in the field of antibiotic development to the smaller companies um, and to academics who are working in this field. Well, just to give a sense of what we're up against from a business standpoint, I want to go to the second clip we have from this frontline program, uh, which deals with one major pharmaceutical company, uh, Pfizer, which had been until recently a major player in antibiotic development. And this is Dr. John Quinn, who worked at the company. In 1983, when I finished my training, almost every pharmaceutical company had an antibiotic development team. And by the time I landed at Pfizer in 2008, we were really down to three big guys and some smaller companies, biotechs and so on. And I think all of us felt that, you know, we had a moral obligation to continue to work in this area. There was a pressing clinical need. Most companies had abandoned the field, and we were still in the game. We were proud to still be in the game. Quinn and his team believed they were onto something big, several different compounds to treat gram negatives. The potential breakthroughs got the attention of the company's science advisors, including Brad Spellberg. I felt that their pipeline was probably the most comprehensive and important antibacterial pipeline in the world, focusing on the types of bacteria that we're really having severe problems with right now. Which are the? The, the highly resistant gram-negative bacteria. These would have solved problems and saved lives had they been successfully developed. But bringing these drugs to market faced the economic paradox of antibiotics. If you need an antibiotic, you need it only briefly. Indeed, that's the, that's the correct way to use an antibiotic. You use it only briefly. And from an economic standpoint of a developer, that means you're not, you're not getting the return on the investment you've made because you've spent between 600 million and a billion dollars to bring that new antibiotic to market. Wait, I mean it costs up to a billion dollars to bring a new drug to market? It can easily cost up to a billion dollars to bring a new drug to the market. And the initial reaction to it is, that's great, and we're, let's not use it. Let's use it as little as possible. So Aaron Kesselheim, what do we do about this? It sounds like we have a, a societal need, but the incentives are wrong for industry to solve that problem. 
Well, I mean, I think that that's right, although I think that their um, estimates of uh, the cost of drug development are um, a bit exaggerated. Um, I do think that it is still very costly to, to develop drugs, and um, I, I, agree, I also think that there are probably ways that you can still um, get a good uh, return on investment even for a short course of a therapy. We see that in, in other um, in other treatments for cancer that, is, that are short courses of therapy as well. Um, I think the essential uh, problem is, is that the way that our current model is designed is that um, we reimburse for, uh, for new drugs on a uh, per prescription basis and we reimburse uh, generally for a limited period of time until the um, uh, pharmaceutical uh, branding, pharmaceutical manufacturer's intellectual property runs out. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that if we're um, serious about trying to develop new, uh, uh, new classes of new antibiotics and engaging the large pharmaceutical companies in doing that, um, we may need to think of new models for trying to make sure that uh, they can both uh, get a return on their investment and we can also make sure that we have, we're able to conserve the antibiotics that we need um, for uh, future generations and not overuse them during this initial period of of market exclusivity when it makes the most uh, financial sense to those companies. So changing patent protection, for, for instance, what you're saying. Right, or, or I guess what we've proposed is uh, is linking the, uh, the patent life to actual prudent use of the antibiotics and appropriate use mm -hmm. of the antibiotics. And as long as the antibiotics are used appropriately, um, then they can, uh, then they, they should be able to um, to maintain a, a return on their investment because that, that means that they're, that would engage them as partners with um, physicians and patients in, in ensuring appropriate use of antibiotics. Right now, what happens is as in, when a new antibiotic hits the market, uh, the pharmaceutical companies are interested in, in promoting the product as much as possible and getting as much prescription of it as possible for that uh, limited period of time that they have um, exclusive rights over it. And, and that's not consistent with public health goals. When Stuart Levy, we should mention you're here in another role. You actually are co-founder of a pharmaceutical company uh, working on antibiotics, correct? Yeah, Paratech we, Pharmaceuticals? We, Paratech Pharmaceuticals, which has taken tetracycline, a very commonly used antibiotic. We defined in uh, at Tufts Medical School the mechanism for resistance, which was efflux as well as protection of the ribosome. And we established the company based on the fact that we thought and we succeeded in showing that we could circumvent both mechanisms of resistance. And so we have a drug that's passed phase two, it's going into phase three, and uh, it's one basis of creating a new antibiotic is you take the old one that doctors know and love and you make it better. That is, it will hit all these bacteria that are endangering us because they're resistant and we can't treat them. And you, that's a nice focus and we've been able to make a good drug so out why, of it. So why do you think there's money to be made here when Pfizer doesn't? Well, because we're small. <laughs> you know, so we're not, not taking care of thousands mm -hmm. of people. I mean, we're, I mean, I mean, in terms of production and development. But I also think that when you compare yourself to cancer drugs, they can be at any price virtually that you want. And you may extend the life of the patient for two months or three months, and you spend all this money, but no one argues. But if you take an antibiotic and you know you can rescue the life, like in this little girl, but with uh, a drug which is now costing maybe dollars or $10, it's not the thousands of dollars, and people even complain, they almost, 
sort of the history of antibiotics. Oh, we yeah. expect it. You know, you're giving the public what they need. And we argue that that's what we should do. But at the same time, I think there's a little difference in goals. And I know in my group, when we started our product, which is omatocycline, uh, the argument came out, it's our moral duty, mm -hmm. right? We feel we must do that. We should do that. We have the way forward. So that says, that goes counter to the investment community which wants a nice return on the investment. Well, clearly, we, I think you'd all agree we need new drugs. But we also have drugs that are failing that we want to not fail so quickly. And maybe, Beth Bell, I can go back to you, because this is something that you talk about in your recent report. What can be done to make sure that the drugs we currently have don't fail so quickly, that maybe we'll get a few more years out of them before we have to turn to newer drugs? Yes, thank you. I um, appreciate the, um, the point, and I think it's a very, very important point to make. You know, we all, I think, can agree, as you say, that we need new antibiotics. Um, and that's certainly one focus area that we need uh, to work on to move forward. But this is a complicated problem, and we need to attack it on a number of different levels. And another important level is to take the kinds of steps that we know can work to preserve the usefulness of the antibiotics that we currently have, which are an important resource. I mean, you know, we're not going to have many, many new antibiotics in the next year or two. And so, you know, we need to be working on multiple levels. So the, the, what we um, are talking about here is what we call stewardship, antibiotic stewardship. We, rec we estimate that about 50% of antibiotics that are prescribed in hospitals are unnecessary. And so this needs to change. And the way for it to change is for um, hospitals uh, and other institutions to take seriously forming and implementing stewardship programs where there's a recognized leader uh, in, the, uh, in the hospital, where antibiotic use is tracked, where there's benchmarking, where there's education and there's feedback. And this is coupled with tracking resistance at the same time. Um, we at CDC actually will be issuing a report about antibiotic use uh, next month. And, and in that report, we're going to really be highlighting uh, the importance of hospitals and other institutions having stewardship programs so that there's a concrete place to go and people who are tracking how doctors uh, are using antibiotics and providing feedback when they're not using them appropriately. Well, so I tell you. The whole, it, Go ahead. I was just going to say that, you know, I mean, the more one learns about this issue, the less one wants to go to a hospital. Not that you ever want to go to a hospital, but yeah. hospitals seem to be where a lot of the infections are emerging, these resistant infections are emerging, where they're spreading, where it is the healthcare workers who are encouraging this problem. Is it a systemic problem with healthcare in, well, not just this country, but healthcare in the world? Well, you know, um, a couple of. Uh, things I uh, sort of reflect on that. Um, while we do, um, you know, focus a lot on hospitals, and as Dr. Lipsitch said, hospitals are places where there are a lot of sick people and bad germs and resistance genes can jump from bacteria to bacteria. Um, there's a lot of, um, oftentimes these uh, infections can be spread from one instance, from a hospital to a nursing home, into the community. And this is, I think, another aspect of prevention that we think is quite important, 
is that there needs to be a tracking mechanism within a community where different institutions can be talking to each other so that they know when these uh, organisms are spread. The other thing I would say uh, is that um, there's a huge amount of antibiotic misuse in the community. Um, and there are a number of measures that are used in outpatient facilities um, which give us a sense of uh, how um, much antibiotic overuse there is. We published a, a research letter in the New England Journal not too long ago that showed that for every 10 people in the United States, there are more than eight prescriptions written. And there's a huge range in terms of how much prescribing is going on across states. So you're saying and this each is, of course, an each year. That's mm -hmm. right. And so this is another area where um, clearly a lot more work needs to be done. We need to understand why is it that there's this huge range across states, and what can we do to improve use in the community? Well, I'd like and to one other thing. Oh, sure. Just one other thing I want to say is that uh, consumers of healthcare have a very important role to play here. So yes, you know, there's the doctor side of things, but there's also every one of us as patients. When we go to a doctor, you know, we can make clear that we're not expecting an antibiotic, and indeed maybe we don't want an antibiotic unless we have a very clear explanation for why we might need it. So while there's a lot to be done in healthcare, there's also a lot that we as consumers of healthcare can do uh, to kind of uh, improve antibiotic prescribing practices. Well, but there, there's this fundamental, I think, conflict between what the community needs and what the individual needs or wants, and I'm not sure who wants to address this, but um, for, for me, if I might have a bacterial infection, it does make sense to take the antibiotic, but for us as a society, unless it's pr we're pretty darn sure that I've got it, maybe I shouldn't take it. Aaron, you want to take that? Sure. I mean, I, I think that there are two, two really important points there. I think the first thing you, you, you brought out very well in your question is what we need is we need better diagnostic tools. We need better ways of distinguishing between um, an antibiotic and uh, a bacterial infection and a viral infection or a bacterial infection and, and what is not a bacterial infection. And that can be either through technological advances or through greater study of the constellation of symptoms that arise so that you can, you, you can give doctors better predictive tools. Um, and I, 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 unfortunately, there isn't a lot of investment in the development of these, uh, of these diagnostics, or not only do there have to be diagnostics, but there have to be useful diagnostics. So they have to be available to, to be able to provide feedback on a relatively rapid basis. If you send something for a culture and get something back 72 hours later, the person's already got three days of antibiotics and, and you're a little bit behind the eight ball. I think the second point is that I agree with a lot of what Dr. Bell said about uh, the need for better education and better um, uh, control of antibiotic use in hospitals. I think a lot of the problem is that there just isn't a lot of funding for this kind of work. Um, you know, hospitals get reimbursed when they admit a patient and treat them with antibiotics, but they don't get reimbursed necessarily for having these kinds of umbrella uh, um, programs in place to have infectious disease experts look at the appropriate use right, of antibiotics so and screen them. Disease, and the, we usually ask, doc, ask hospitals to, to, to foist that, that cost themselves. And I think that if there was a lot more funding for those kinds of programs, um, they'd be a lot more prevalent and, 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 and be very useful. I'd like to go from the healthcare setting to the farm, which is another part of the, the picture here. Um, we've got lots of farm animals, cows, chickens, pigs, that are taking antibiotics on a daily basis, not because they're sick, but because it turns out they grow faster. Uh, and uh, Dr. Levy, you have- well, we, we did some of the work early on in the 70s, actually, believe it. 
looking at what would happen on a farm, what happens on a farm. In those days, uh, industry was claiming that what happened on the farm was like being on another planet because farm and the rest of the society never got together. Well, we all proven that wrong, retail, uh, retail sales and so forth. But uh, I think that the animal use of antibiotics in some ways is mimicking the people use of antibiotics. And I think that we have a, we as a, a population or we as a community have a very different idea on what an antibiotic can be used for, what it's there for, and uh, what you have uh, in the in way of designated uh, drugs. I think that the fact that you get some more growth out of an animal and you give an antibiotic and it goes to everyone, I mean, it's creating in its wake resistant bacteria that well, then come back. And in fact, a recent FDA report found, if I've got this right, that 65% of chickens and 44% of ground beef tested uh, carried bacteria resistant to tetras tetracycline. Yeah, they, they, the organisms being found, sometimes the drug itself has not been found, but the organisms are the ones that aren't followed. They test for the drug. So we have to really sort of open up the vision here to see that it's the drug that may be in small amounts that you can't detect, but it's creating a lot of resistant bacteria. I call, getting back to some of the earlier, I call antibiotics societal drugs, if you think about it. They're the only drug in a category that individual use affects the rest of the community. Should we not tax people for that? What should we do to stop this profligate use of antibiotics when we're affecting all of society? We're affecting communities. And, and so this way, I think you change the focus to realize that the animals and people interact together. And we have a drug which will affect other people and will affect animals and pet animals and so forth. It's not like any other drug out there that is individualized, as we heard earlier. I mean, you're treating asthma, you're treating um, mm -hmm. some pneumonias, you're, you're focused. Uh, Mark Lipsick? Yeah, I want to pick up on this idea of a societal drug. I think we're in a public health school and it's important to focus on some of the public health roles that antibiotics have. We've heard a lot about the very important role they play in medicine and in treatment of individual patients. Um, there are certain infections, mostly sexually transmitted diseases and tuberculosis, for which treatment is our major public health intervention. We have to find cases, treat them, maybe treat their contacts. And so I find those to be particularly worrying, and, and multidrug resistant gonorrhea was on the top three list from the mm -hmm. CDC. Uh, I might have put tuberculosis there, although it's mainly a problem at the moment in other countries, because the, the actual prevention of the disease depends on continuing access to good antibiotics and we're losing so them. So you're not just treating that one patient, you're treating all the, you're preventing disease in all those patients, other people who would become would patients with they exactly. were infected. I also think that the environment is not given enough attention. When you think about it, you, we have the hospital, that's where most of the drug is. They asked Willie Sutton, why is he robbing banks? Why do you ask <laughs> others what you're doing looking at resistant bacteria? You go where it is, in the hospital. Right. and. I think that there you have more facilities to judge whether the infection, what is the infection or is resistant or susceptible. So you have an advantage there. But the point is that resistance 
is out there. It's in the environment. We've shown that you can go into natural settings and you pick up, like you were talking about the permafrost uh, incident, that these resistant genes are all over and we forget that, in fact, they're environmental, they're ecologic, but they're out there and we have the program called the Reservoirs of Antibiotic Resistance in which we've tracked different bacteria that are out in the environment and then they end up in the patient. The NDM1 in India is an example. They found it in the environment after it was already a clinical problem. This is an, an, a resistant gene, gene that's to been carbapenem, in India. one of the major antibiotics we're trying to salvage. Well, so maybe this is a good place to kind of bring up some consumer advice. Uh, what do you all do to protect yourselves? Do you, would you let your child get a tattoo? Would you, would you travel to India? Would you? Are you avoiding going to the hospital all, at all costs? What, how have you changed your life because you know these drug-resistant uh, bugs are out there? Well, I, so I'm a primary care physician and I, I take care of patients and, and I come into these kinds of, of discussions a lot where patients come into my office and, are, and have um, a, uh, symptoms that, that suggest maybe they need an antibiotic. And a lot of times people come in and, and, and their chief complaint is, I want an antibiotic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think that a lot of, in a lot of cases, and, and I understand that, that you know, in, in busy primary care offices, it's a lot easier for a physician to give the antibiotic rather than to sit there for 10 minutes and explain to the patient why their symptoms may not require that the antibiotic is necessary. So, I mean, what, you know, what I try to do is, is uh, I do try to have those conversations with patients and, and try to explain um, you know, the ideas of antibiotic resistance because it isn't, it isn't only an antibiotic resistance at a societal level, but it's also antibiotic resistance at the individual patient level that if you keep treating an individual patient over and over again with the same antibiotic, then you lose the, the potential for the, the potency of the antibiotic later on. Well, Beth Bell, how do you protect yourself? Are there any steps you take in your daily life? Um, you know, there are some very simple things like hand washing that, you know, it's very, very simple, but it definitely works and it definitely helps. Um, and I, you know, I think that uh, I try to be an informed consumer. And I think, you know, this is one of the things that we at the CDC are trying to promote as much as possible to, you know, for people to be um, informed consumers. I mean, even, um, you know, on the topic of hospitals, um, you know, there's way more transparency these days than there used to be about um, hospital performance in the area, for example, of healthcare-associated infections. We operate a um, voluntary web-based system called the National Healthcare Safety Network, which involves more than 12,000 institutions that report um, the incidence of certain healthcare-associated infections, and these um, this information is avail publicly available mm -hmm. on CMS's Hospital Compare website. Um, and so there are actually uh, a number of tools like that. So how would you find that? that? What you put in? You could just go to put... Hospital Compare. The name of the website is Hospital Compare. Google it, and you can find uh, out how your hospital does in terms of infection rate. Certain, that's Great. right. There's certain infections that are reported um, from every um, acute care hospital in the country onto Hospital Compare. Thank you. We, of course, are webcasting, and we've got some folks who are watching over the web who have got questions for us, and Lisa's Hi. going to bring them to us. Yes, um, we do. We have questions coming in from Twitter and from our live chat and also uh, to our email account. So I'm just going to share some of them. Some of them you've already covered in your comments. Um, this one is from our live chat. How many companies are still actively producing new antibiotics? Who can A handful. 
I mean, I don't know if it's three or five, but you don't have the 10 or 20 that we had. And again, th these are large companies you're talking about. I think yeah. there are a lot of small companies like Good the point. one that you are, yeah. uh, that you're leading, that are actively involved in the field of antibiotics. And then there are you know, a, a good number of antibiotics that are involved in investigational trials that are being uh, pushed forward by these smaller companies. Okay, great, thank you. Um, this is another one. Do the panel believe that cycling of antibiotics over time might reduce the selective pressure and extend effectiveness? And maybe there we can two talk. Problems. So let, let, me, let me just say first, so cycling, we're talking about so using one antibiotic briefly and then switching to another and another so that the, the bug can't, ev hopefully evolve its way around it? Right. Is that the general Yeah, idea? recurrent pneumonias in, in uh, indigent patients. When I was a medical student, we were told to s cycle. I'm not so sure that that's proven to be helpful. Yeah. Maybe you know, Mark. We actually Mark. did uh, quite a bit of work about the theoretical basis of cycling antibiotics. The idea is to sort of keep bacteria guessing uh, <laughs> so that they get ready for one antibiotic and then they get hit with another one. And it turns out for a, that that what we think of as cycling to them is not making them guess at all because there, as I mentioned, their generation time is 30 minutes. So if you mm. treat a patient or a group of patients for a, a month, the patients in a hospital unit for a month with one antibiotic and then switch to another, for the from the bacteria's perspective, that's a lot of time. So that that's, was eons ago. That's e so, so they're getting a very, very constant environment. So I think what's a better, a better approach is the what's done in individual patients with tuberculosis of combining drugs um, or on a patient on a group level in, like in a hospital unit to treat different patients with different antibiotics um, well, and that uh, that that idea of cycling was a big fad for about 10 years and mm -hmm. it kind of fell out of favor because the theoretical basis didn't make sense and it didn't show wasn't well, but this to work. It didn't work and, yeah, and if you work. have multi-drug resistant bacteria, which drug are you going <laughs> to use? Well, I've but, already guessed. But, but what I don't understand with the one of the big breakthroughs with HIV treatment was the triple drug cocktail, right? The idea that if you give someone a single drug, the virus is going to evolve resistance. But if you give three different drugs, you box it in and it's, it's stuck. It can't become, why don't we do the same thing with bacteria? We don't have the variety. We don't have the same targets. But I think that bacteria are more resilient, that's all. They're also much larger. Vi viruses are much, have a much smaller number of, of, of genes to them. Yeah. So the bacteria are much, much larger. So it would be relatively difficult, practically speaking, to do it. That, that idea is how we treat tuberculosis. The mm -hmm. HIV people got it from TB. The tuberculosis people got it from Paul Ehrlich, who, in, who came up with it in the 19th century for treating syphilis. <laughs> um, and, but, but in many cases, we don't have the drugs or, or it's not as useful. Great. Another question? Take one more. Maybe some of our audience has questions sure. also. Um, we've been getting a number of questions about natural remedies and solutions, so I'll take one of those. Plant herb-based solutions have been used and proven effective both in the past and currently to fight bacterial as well as viral infections. At this point, the bacteria do not seem to have developed resistance to natural products. I understand why this may not be financially worthy for some companies to pursue this unless they could control the market, not wanted. But why is this not explored to a greater degree and by the CDC? Uh, well, uh, maybe we should start with the <laughs> CDC since <laughs> since the directed. CDC was mentioned <laughs> in the question. <laughs> uh, so, Beth, I don't know if you would like to address this, but are there natural uh, and a 
dysbiotic properties in herbs that we can take? Is this something you would advise? And why isn't the CDC doing more? Well, um, we are um, interested in making evidence-based recommendations. That's our business, that's our job, and that's sort of what, you know, we pledge to the American people. So, you know, to the extent that there's good evidence um, about any of these sorts of um, remedies, we would be, I think, you know, certainly including that um, with uh, other potential strategies. Um, as I say, it's, it's really a matter of where is the science um, and that's our job is to, you know, sort of um, put together all the best science and provide recommendations to um, the American public. Um, where we do that in all of our, all the spheres in which we're active, including this one. Anyone else want to address this question? Well, I think it lacks money. You know, all these ideas would be great if we had a central clearinghouse that could repeat some of these studies. And I think some of that's being done. NIH is trying to uh, visualize and, and sort of judge different sort of natural ailments. But I get letters like that all the time. Honey, you know, fill a wound with honey and it will suffocate the bacteria and does eventually. It, does it work? And it, you get the pictures and you get the word that works, but you know, go get a grant. I mean, grants are hard <laughs> to get. I mean, seriously, if we had that level, maybe this could be the last, the, 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 the next digitalis. And it does speak to the, the, the concern that um, when, when the government does condense funding for groups like the NIH, which are, the, you know, where a lot of the funding for these kind of uh, early stage research and basic science research comes from, um, it affects the, this exactly, this kind of work and pursuing new avenues potentially in basic science research that could lead to new um, to new antibiotic products and you know already the the amount of funding that that goes from the NIH to infectious diseases is much smaller than other areas and if you if you constrict um, that kind of, of public funding even further then then you run the risk of, of shooting yourself in the foot long term in terms of development of, of potential new ideas but I, I agree with both of the other comments that I, I think that, that it just comes down to a matter of the science and if things are proven to work then then they should be able to to uh, to be used, and if things are proven to work, then there should be a market that comes soon after it for the development of them. But natural, I mean, the first antibiotics, many of them were natural products, mm -hmm. and pharmaceutical companies are not dumb. They've been screening natural products for antibiotic properties. They're not, they're not trying to discriminate based on natural or artificial. They would take anything that's that works. Um, the problem is that that. We found a lot of the good ones, and now it's really hard to find the next yeah, one. Just curious, also about probiotics. Yeah. Um, can we com combat the, the the bad germs with the good germs? Do you guys eat yogurt? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We've been getting a lot of questions <laughs> about probiotics, yeah. so well, we can. That's, <laughs> that's an old idea, and in fact, it is being practiced. If you have, since we're worried about Clostridium difficile, that after an antibiotic treatment many centers will then give a patient uh, yogurt to take or some lactobacillus. Uh, and it alters the flora in favor of the more natural flora. And it, uh, there's nothing harmful about it. I say try it. Do it. I mean, as Mark was saying, there's lots of natural products, but I'm talking about things like you are, yogurt, um, even honey, um, thinking of some of the others, you get letters from, have you tried this doctor? Have you tried that? What it says to me is that people out there really want to help mm -hmm. and they think they've made the discovery of their life. Well, maybe they did, but 
there's nobody there, you know, giving out the dollars to get the. I was approached just two days ago, an interesting idea, and he said, I have no money for it. So what do we do? We write a grant. If you write a grant, maybe eight months later you'll hear, and it's generally negative these days. So anyway, it's Thank groups you. like this that can make a difference, though, by saying we should be having more antibiotics, and it doesn't matter if they're natural products. Although you could worry that resistance <laughs> would be a problem after all. We have a room full of people who braved the uh, Boston blizzard, and I want to give you all a chance if anyone's got questions for our panel. Back there. Um, do antibacterial products that have proliferated in the last decade or so have anything to do with what we are talking about today? So you're talking about like soaps and things like that. and. Stuart Levy, I know this has well, been an issue of yours. We do have lots of consumer products that claim to be antibacterial. Well, they might be antibacterial if you wait long enough, but the point is that they're more environmental poisons than they are needed. Washing your hands with soap and water is all you have to do. And in fact, echoing what Dr. Bell said, that's the first attack against infectious diseases, is wash your hands. And I have a big kick on, on the idea of lunch. Think about it. How many of you will wash your hands in the morning and wash your hands before you go to bed? But what happens to lunch? <laughs> you're talking to someone, you're at a, I mean, at medical meetings. I mean, we see these people, I say, are you going to go wash your hands? Oh, I was having such a good conversation. So lunch comes with bacteria and the other one's not. But what about the, but what about the antibacterial compounds in soap, in we toothpaste? Showed, Is that showed, part of the problem? We, sh we showed several years ago that yes, they work in the test tube. Yes, they also uh, have a target, which makes them like an antibiotic, which is a cell wall protein. And the bacteria, this drug, or this triclosan, is the major drug or chemical. And it prevents the bacterium from making a cell wall. It's just like penicillin, it falls apart. Well, that was the first time that anyone said that these drugs chemicals acted like a bona fide antibiotic. But they're not contributing to tetracycline now, that resistance. That was the question. The question was, and the answer is in the test, in the laboratory, we get them easily by mutation. And we find that you get resistant to multiple antibiotics from the same organism that's just seen triclosan. Really? Yes. But then we went to homes mm -hmm. to see whether homes with and without treat cleaning agents with chemicals were different. And the only one we found was benzoconium chloride where there was a little difference, but triclosan did not. But what was, did we find? We found so much multi-drug resistance in what I would call environmental organisms plus others that are coming into the home that the base was so high we couldn't see a statistically significant interest, increase. But they will do it, and the question is not as much as antibiotics, and against what's happening in the antibiotics and, and animal husbandry and so forth, uh, they're not the mate. They're nowhere near the major contributor. Thank you. This has been a great presentation. Um, so I've seen evidence that about one third of patients don't adhere to even short-term treatments, and so I wonder to what extent patient non-adherence contributes to the problem of antibiotic resistance and what the public health community can do to support patients in being more adherent. Well, maybe, so Aaron, you, you're treating patients, I assume, on a, who have infections, and sometimes you're telling them, I don't want to put you on an antibiotic, but 
do you sometimes say go on an antibiotic but they don't take it properly? Yes, and I think that that is that is an important issue. And there are the reason why patients don't adhere to uh, drug therapy, including antibiotic therapy. Are there are many reasons: um, cost of therapy, um, the fact that it can be very difficult to remember to take a product as it's you know four times a day or something like that. Um, I do think that there are a lot of studies that show um, for patients with infections um, that a you know X week course of antibiotics is more effective than a Y week course of antibiotics. And so that's why physicians prescribe, when a person does have a confirmed um, bacterial infection, physicians prescribe an antibiotic for a period of, of, of that amount of time. And under treatment of the, uh, of the bacterium will uh, lead the bacterium to not be completely eradicated and will select for um, resistant organisms that could then come back and affect the patient later. So I think that if, a, if there is a documented uh, a bacterial infection and a, and a physician pr provides a, um, uh, a treatment, then, then the patient does need to adhere to the treatment in order to treat it best. So um, I mean, I think that, that the ways that we can try to improve adherence overall as physicians is we can um, make sure to, to prescribe appropriate antibiotics that are um, less expensive as opposed to antibiotics that are more expensive and therefore um, would, may lead the, the patient not to take the whole course um, and be mindful of the other social factors that, that contribute to, to non-adherence um, and also encouraging patients to understand the importance that you know maybe you'll feel better a week in but it's really important to take this product for the full two weeks. And in cases with people with tuberculosis sometimes they are literally quarantined if they're not taking their drugs properly, correct? Right, and then there are also programs where we do directly observe therapy for, for products like tuberculosis, for, for conditions like tuberculosis to make sure that they're adhering and for, you know, for that, that, for that particular uh, uh, condition, you know, requires months uh, of therapy. Um, so, uh, you know, there are some strategies that are used to try to improve adherence, but non-adherence to medications is, is a major public health issue. And it's mostly the community that you're talking about. I mean, in the hospital, it's the healthcare workers who give you the drugs. I mean, you may not take them, but uh, so it's a community, and the community is given short shrift here. They, it's a lot of drug being used in the community. I think more misuse in the community than in the hospital. And we haven't even talked about overseas. I mean, in the developing world, you've got mm. lots of antibiotics, some, uh, not produced properly, don't have the right dosage, some counterfeit, and being used widely, and that, and those can spread here too. Sure, I mean, the, I think that you know, bacteria system. don't know uh, the difference between one country and another country. So you know, the the, the problem of, of drug resistant bacteria is a global problem, and it requires global coordination of uh, of stewardship and other and other. And we don't we don't you don't really have a lot of of cooperation across states in these kinds of issues. Yeah, which that's why the alliance actually spends much of its time on the outside the U.S., <laughs> in poor countries, in Africa, in, in uh, South America, and we believe this is a global problem, and bacteria know no borders, so they can move back and forth, and if you don't good stewardship in the developing countries, you're going to have trouble anyway, because you're not, it's not happening in ours, so we have to be sure that it's a universal and uh, not just U.S. We're going to try to squeeze in, I think, one, you, one I more think question. We have one good question here that can wrap things up, but I want to thank you for addressing the global implications because we have had several viewers writing in about that. This is from 
Patrick Welch of the office of Senator Jerry Hill, which I believe is in California. What are the top three to five things, policies, laws, et cetera, that states can do to battle drug resistance? I'm going to, instead of three to five, I'll give you each one to two really quickly. <laughs> that sounds good. And why don't, why don't we start uh, with Beth Bell? You're actually in a position perhaps to implement these things. If you could do one or two things that you can't do right now, what would it be? Well, um, states really do have a lot of authority here. And so it's actually, I'm, I'm happy to hear that this is a question from a state uh, legislature. First of all, um, the states are the ones that have the authority to require reporting of these resistant organisms when they're identified. And there's really only a minority of states now um, that require reporting, for example, of CRE, which is one of um, the our sort of drug, I mean, bugs of top concern. So that's one thing. And then I, th I think the second thing um, relates to some of these issues around stewardship and stewardship programs, where I think, um, while um, we can do more to make it easier for hospitals to have stewardship programs, I think that there's also the other side of this where we can make clear to hospitals um, that it's an expectation that they have stewardship programs. And this, I think, um, you know, will help uh, drive uh, the general sort of a conversation about what's acceptable and what's not. So I guess those would be my two. Aaron, what, if you could wave a magic wand, what would you do? So yeah, again, I think we're, uh, I think directing this at what states can do right now is really important because uh, you know a lot of the policy making is going to come from states on these issues, and I think that states um, can provide uh, greater funding for these kinds of stewardship programs and greater education to their uh, citizens and to and to the physicians working in the state borders about the importance of. Uh, antibiotic stewardship and uh, and this 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 idea that we're all in this together. Mark, yeah, I would add that the, the, in general there are a lot of measures that don't have to do with antibiotic use directly, but they can pr help prevent antibiotic use. And one example is vaccination, and more generally other prevention measures. Because as as we've all all been talking about, and the bacteria don't know why you're taking the antibiotic; they just respond by being selected for resistance. So if we can prevent flu, and that leads to fewer cases of bacterial pneumonia, or just fewer people being treated for uh, any kind of respiratory infection, that will reduce antibiotic use. Um, and vaccine, vaccine delivery is, of course, a, a, an important state issue. I'm sure you've got a long list, but if you could do yeah. one thing that's not being well, done. Well, the one thing, it may not be done, but it's, it may be done, but it's not done enough, is education. So we, we heard about the community, and I think the community needs to be a partner in preparing, in making, and in helping to use these antibiotics properly. And I was, a medicine teacher I had in internal medicine said, if I gave you $800 million, where would you put the money? And it was a trick question. What he wanted, the answer was 700 million for education and 100 million for new ways to do it. And I, that stuck with me, and it's so true. So, education. Well, then I appreciate all of you doing your part in educating our audience here today. And I guess I've taken away two messages. One is perhaps this isn't as big a threat as terrorism, but we should take it seriously. And the other is I'm going to wash my hands before lunch. <laughs> so I want to thank our panelists, uh, Stuart Levy, Aaron Kesselheim, Mark Lipsitch, and Beth Bell. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks to our audience here in Boston. And although today's forum 
is coming to an end. The conversation will continue online. You can leave comments, and I hope you will, at forumhsph.org. Thank you. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.